3: Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. Well, here we are again, poised on the brink of a disaster, apparently, waiting for the calamity to take hold, apparently, and wondering whether there will be enough toilet paper to keep everyone going until the weekend. Uh, If you saw the state of some of the supermarket shelves over the course of the weekend, uh, believe me, this is one of the most ridiculous and pathetic reactions to something I think I've ever seen. Indeed, it has been a weird few days in coronavirus land. The Department of Health has now tested 23,500, 513 people for the disease, and guess how many of them have come back negative? About 23,240. Now you does not need me to tell you that that's quite a big number of people who actually do not have. Coronavirus, And despite this, there are more grave warnings about the end of days, the entire world becoming infected and the shutting down of all public events. Meanwhile, despite Italy shutting down and putting over 16 million people into quarantine, flights from that country are still coming into UK airports. On Saturday, when I was at Gatwick uh, waiting for my daughter to arrive from Vienna, there were three flights incoming from Venice, Bologna and Milan uh, in the same hour. As ever, we want to hear your stories of what is going on in your world, your workplace and your children's schools. Uh, We've been asked as well to do as much as we can to help you out with information. So if any of you have got information that you need to share with other people listening to this show, you know that we are the voice of common sense and the place to get the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. But we will be talking over the course of the next few days to various insurance companies, to various travel companies, uh, to various schooling organisations, to various train companies, rail companies, airline companies, just to find out what exactly is going on. Coming up, we'll be talking to Katie Perry as well, former head of communications at number 10, to find out whether she thinks the government is doing the right thing, and how the new chancellor, Rishi Sunak, will be able to produce a budget on Wednesday amidst all this clamour about the business world going completely doolally and falling apart at the seams. The oil price went down to as low as $30 a barrel overnight. Uh, We've got billions and billions and billions of pounds being wiped off the stock exchange. Meanwhile, everybody else is sort of are going about their business in a relatively normal way. I'll also ask her about why the Labour Party can't seem to solve the problem of anti-Semitism but can find a way to suspend anti-racism campaigner Trevor Phillips, one of the most well-balanced and normal uh, people I think I've ever come across in the world of politics. And I'll also be asking why on earth the BBC thought it was a good idea to put the fox-killing barrister Jolian Moron on the Today programme to tell everyone how sorry he feels for himself after murdering an innocent animal in cold blood, then boasting about it on social media before being cleared by the RSPCA, 0344 And as ever, we are live streaming on YouTube, on Facebook and on Twitter, so as well as listening to us right here, uh, you can watch us as well. Uh, you're listening to me, Mike Graham, right here on the fastest-growing radio station in the world. It is, of course, Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, you'd be uh, probably forgiven uh, if you were to land here from a spaceship having having come from Mars uh, into the future uh, and seeing headlines like Third Virus Victim uh, in the United Kingdom, uh, Italy in chaos as thousands race to escape quarantine, now shops to ration food, now it's rationing on the front of the Daily Mirror. I mean, you know, incredible, really. And the front of the Telegraph today with the story that I sort of picked out uh, on Saturday, uh, which is quarantine fast as Italian planes fly in. Now, apparently... Um, You can fly here for Italy. You can fly to Italy, uh, but Italy is under some kind of quarantine. I think they need to look up the word quarantine and figure out precisely what it is that that actually means. Let's talk to Katie Perrier, uh, who has been quarantined uh, in the world of business for quite some time, uh, presumably making as much money as she possibly can, in case it all goes horribly wrong. Katie, very good uh, morning to you.
4: Good morning, Mike. I think it's more of a sense that I'm just trying to get away from you. (laughs)
3: Well, listen, I've been cleared of coronavirus. I think I've already had it. I am not in any way an an infector or a a super spreader of any kind.
4: It wasn't coronavirus I was worried about.
3: Oh, right. Okay. Thanks very much indeed for that. (laughs) Now, how do you think the government are doing here? Because It's quite difficult, isn't it? If you're the Chancellor of the Exchequer, you've got your first ever budget coming up, having sort of basically poked your your former mentor in the ribs and got rid of him. Uh, You've got his job and you've got to produce a budget uh, in the midst of this kind of madness that's all around.
4: I think it's a tough gig, right? On the one hand, if you say anything about quarantine or anything about rationing or you know limiting people in public spaces or over 75 should stay at home, you're accused of, quite rightly, as you pointed out, Mike, earlier, you know, a little bit oversensitive, a little yeah. bit too much, you know, the slow, snowflake generation. But then if you ignore it or indeed you go against expert advice then you know that will pay off in, in the future in, in a very bad way so people will look back and think well you know what the Prime Minister was advised by ex- experts and ignored that advice already there's a blame game going on in Italy yeah. to how did it kind of get out of control in the way that it has and I'm, so I'm told totally
3: even old Montalbano's brother's got it
4: it's not a nice place to be right now. And I, I have some sympathy with the people at Number 10 to try and walk that very tight balance between scaremongering and being responsible and doing the right yes. thing. Yes, I
3: actually think they're doing all right. I think they're so striking I. quite a decent balance. I spoke yeah, to Jeremy Hunt as well last week, at the back end of last week, who's on the uh, he's the chairman of the Health Select Committee. And he was saying things like, you know, there's no point in stopping... Air travel, or sort of banning flights from incoming various con- from various countries, because in the end people can travel by a variety of means, and all it really does is it kind of stagnates all sorts of trade and all sorts. Because I mean, I worry more about the business. Um, reactions to this, and the way that the kind of fallout is going to is going to is going to happen, rather than the actual virus itself.
4: Yeah, I noticed one bank has sent its staff away from central London this morning to go and work in Croydon, like that's a safe place. Well, that's punishment you know, enough, isn't it? <laughs> it's just you know I, I think that we are trying to do our best, but with limited uh, ideas about how exactly how to control mm. it. I think that the overwhelming message I've got from reading and listening to experts of the weekend, because, of course, we are not experts. They are, and we need to respect what they say, is that, that you can't really contain it anymore, but you can delay it. And the reason why delay is important, as I understand it, and I'm no expert myself is that we just need to delay it so that healthcare professionals can can cope with it, uh, should there be you know an outburst in, in our local areas mm. or whatever. Um, and we, we kind of flatten out the demand for all the products, all the healthcare workers, all of the hospital beds. And so it's about making sure that we can cope rather than... Yeah, if but it all you comes know, when you once, see videos,
3: as I don't know whether you saw over the weekend, of, of women fighting over toilet roll in supermarkets, you do wonder about the point of saving any of these people, to be honest. I mean, what is wrong with them?
4: I know, but you know, I've got a little bit of sympathy with them because they are... You know, sitting there all day long, they're reading Twitter or they're watching TV or they're listening to the radio, and they're suddenly, you know, they're quite scared. And I get that, and I get why people there's this kind of comfort in if I get all the stuff I need, I know that I can hanker down and I could be at home for a month or so listening to people like you, Mike, on the radio.
3: Well, listen, but the great s- thing about radio is, is you can listen to it absolutely prejudice-free, and you can't get affected by anything.
4: Yeah, and you can listen Apart to it wherever you sense. are. So even if you lock yourself yeah, in your car, but why do they need so listen? many
3: t- pieces of bits of toilet paper? I mean, you can understand I don't know, and I didn't do that. I can understand them stockpiling, you know, tins. Of, uh, of beans or, you know, tins of peas or something. but It's, a, crowd
4: mentali- it's a herd mentality, isn't yeah. it? If everybody else is doing it, you feel like, oh my God, there's going to be none left for me when I really need it. And therefore, I'm going to get some too. It's and You only bizarre. need a bit of that. And then we're all kind of doing it.
3: Well, that's the thing. I mean, there is this kind of weird mentality where people actually. It feels to me like we've gone from Brexit alarmism to coronavirus alarmism. Almost like we need to be in some kind of constant state of being alarmed about something. Or
4: well, maybe we are. Maybe that we, you know, it's. I remember bumping into journalists after all the Brexit stuff was done and dusted. And all right God, we're so bored. And the last two, three years, you've been telling me you are drowning, you can't cope, you'd like a holiday, it's enough and it's enough, you're you know, you're know, mentally stressed and worked out and burnt out. And now you're saying to me, God, we're so bored. When's the next big story going to hit? So, you know, now you've got one.
3: I know. It is, it is amazing. But the other bit as well for me, which is kind of strange, is the discoveries that we've made over time, like, for example, how many Chinese tourists there were coming in and out of London and going around all different parts of the world in their millions, it would seem. And also... How how many school trips all go to the same part of northern Italy uh, for skiing every single uh, sort of half term in in,
4: uh, in February? Yeah, and we've got another Easter holiday coming up. So, you know, if people are going on holiday, they would be worried whether or not they can go on holiday, whether or not when they come back, they've got to self-isolate a- for a couple of weeks. Yeah. You know, I walked into a TV studio this morning and I had to sign a form to say that I'd not been abroad in the last fortnight before they'd let me in.
3: Yeah, well, it's the same here. You know, if you've been to certain prescribed countries, you won't get into this building either. And well, I mean, you, you know, know. There, there does come a time. I was talking to somebody at the weekend and you hear all of these different sort of stories. Like he was saying, you know, somebody very high up at the BBC who was telling him that absolutely for sure in a month's time, everything will be shut down, the tubes won't be running, and all the buildings in the middle of town uh, will have been closed.
4: Well, you know, the truth is we don't know, do we? What we can say is that some places are managing to deal with it better than others. So yeah. we should learn how they're doing that. And some some experts are saying that's because they self-isolated earlier. And so we're not doing that. I'm going to work as normal. I'm going shopping as normal. I'll do my normal thing until the government tells me to do something yes. different. I'm and that's a lot of responsibility, people. isn't it, on, it on is. the government's shoulders, that I am waiting for my government to tell me that I shouldn't be doing this anymore. I'm an employer of about 15 people. Yeah. I, I need to send them home. The minute the government says... They cannot go to work. So, you know, we are all on standby waiting to see what happens next.
3: And what are your business clients saying? Because you talk to a lot of businesses. You represent a lot of them in various different ways. I mean, what are they saying to you?
4: Well, they're worried. And if you are in the airline industry or you're a hotelier, you know, you, you're quite right to be worried. Central London this morning, I got in a taxi and the taxi driver said, it is dead here. And it's mm. been dead all weekend. I'm really worried about it. I'm come close to retirement. I could probably retire early. There are other drivers out there that got to feed, feed feed kids and... And, uh, you know, and they won't be so lucky. And so they're already saying, God, it's so quiet out there yeah. compared to what it normally like. i got a seat on the train, no problem this morning. Normally I have to stand. So I'm definitely feeling, you know, within central London, it's quieter as yeah. a result.
3: Oh, for sure. And, and you know, the markets will always fluctuate um, and, and people will always make money and lose money and all the rest of it. But, I mean, the oil price diving, I know it's got nothing to do with coronavirus, down to $30 overnight uh, a barrel and the stock market's losing all of our pension money You know, I mean, I think there is a reason to be concerned about all of those effects of things. But, you know, everyone I talk to who's in the long-term investment business says, well, you know, if you're not going to pull your pension for five or ten years, you'll be fine.
4: Exactly, I think that some of those investments are long-term investments, and they've always taken a knock. They took a bit of a knock over Brexit, bounced back fine. Took a bit of a knock, you know, in recession before. Uh, I think that we have to kind of sit it out, really. And what we are, what we don't know, is how long it will be. Um, and when we look at kind of other countries that are starting to to control their numbers and are starting to get on top of it, you know, after a while, China seemed to have turned a corner in terms of slowing down their numbers then we, we, we think that there's this kind of view in the business community, rightly or wrongly, and again, no one is an expert, that this this is kind of a summer blip that you know the back end of the summer everything will be fine and we will look back and thinking oh my god this you know that wasn't that crazy time yeah uh, in the world of business not necessarily you know, you know that's an easy flippant thing to say if you have a relative that has been ill for example but in terms of the world of business th- this is a short-term kind of shock yes I
3: think. meanwhile in the land that time forgot uh, which is what I call the Labour Party uh, <laughs> they're still having some interesting times they've now decided to suspend Trevor Phillips one of the most balanced and sensible people in the world of politics today uh, because they claim he's been making Islamophobic statements one of which he made some so long ago I'm surprised anybody can remember
4: I mean you know I know that it's tough to get news stories in the media right now because coronavirus is filling up every newspaper and every airways. right but even the Labour Party to pull that stunt has got to be saying something <laughs> I mean right you know it, it, it turns out that if you're a member or you, in fact you lead the Labour Party and you have befriended the IRA you're best mates with Hamas yeah. uh, you invite Hezbollah to come for drinks You uh, share a platform with anti-Semitic people who uh, express racist behaviour. You're picketing the front line uh, alongside the Brighton bomber. All of that stuff, apparently that is absolutely fine. But to be Trevor Phillips, who... for many, many years is someone that we look to for sound advice Mm. on these matters. To suspend him is bordering on the ridiculous.
3: It really is, particularly since they've struggled for now, what, several years to deal with the anti-Semitic problem, which even Lisa Nandy, who's running for leader, says that they messed up and got wrong. You know, they're still sitting around without having solved it. They're all still saying, oh, yes, we must get to grips with it. But the people who are anti-Semitic, who are in the party,
4: are still in the party. It's an utter embarrassment. And every Labour leadership candidate left. both the deputy leader and leader needs to come out today and say so and say that this is absolutely ridiculous. That Trevor Phillips is, you know, Trevor Phillips is someone that says, look, you know, if lots of white people committed that crime over here, Mm. you should be able to say that. If there's a trend, uh, and over here, if lots of Asian people commit this kind of crime, you should be able to say that because it's a fact and it's a trend and we should look into it and say, is this something with all different communities, no matter what colour you are, that we need to do? do? Do white people think it's okay to sexually... Uh, Assault people, for example. Do Asian uh, uh, families think it's okay that grooming goes on? The answer to all of those things, of course, is no. None of those crimes are um, acceptable. But we need to look into communities and say, why is it that that's a prevalent or a trend in one community over another? Trevor has said that before. And people have said, oh, you know, it's outrageous. This is, you know, ridiculous. Well, the facts are the facts, Mike. uh,
3: You know, it's called telling the truth, isn't
4: it? It's just the facts. Right. And, and, and for many, many, many years, no one's been allowed to say the fa- facts about anything or anyone. Mm. And I don't have the facts at hand. I'm no expert. I keep on saying this on air this morning in case anyone thinks I'm an expert on anything, Mike. I'm not an expert on anything.
3: Well, you're but, an expert on everything, actually. That's why we you. get you on this show. But um, um,
4: wait, till you, wait
3: till you hear the next question I'm going to ask
4: you. <laughs> I just think that, you know, you should be allowed to say what the facts say for themselves and, and should be allowed to discuss them and ask the question why. And is there anything more we can do as a society to prevent that? Yes. Um. And, and Trevor, for opening his mouth, over many, many years has suddenly you know, uh, they've come down on him for for a crime that seems to be, as you say, ages old and uh, highly ridiculous.
3: Highly ridiculous indeed. Now just going back to the budget for a second, I've been talking to quite a few uh, new Tory MPs from the north of England, the ones who've got in uh, on that sort of red wall collapsing for the Labour Party. Quite a lot of them I find very encouraging because they're talking about the kind of old-fashioned conservatism that we used to have which was i.e. the party of low tax, the party of, you know, less interference in your private life, the party of, of less kind of, you know, big government, all of those things that the Tory party has kind of seemingly given up on over the last 10 years. Uh, And I wonder whether you're hearing inside the Tory party, whether there is in fact a move or a mood to try and get back to to the kind of politics that the Tory party uh, was about before Cameron and and Osborne kind of screwed it all up.
4: I think it's a hard balance to to make, but I'm um, quietly hoping that the budget is going to be much you know, reflective of the manifesto, reflective of what an 80-seat majority delivered for Boris Johnson. And I think that we are, the Conservative Party, in terms of where we are as a country, are broadly in the right place politically to have all of those new seats join uh, in what's so-called Red Wall. By the way, no one knows where the Red Wall starts (laughs) and where it ends. You can say anything about the Red Wall because it goes as far and as wide as you like. But basically, lots of seats who have never voted blue in their lives before, those people are a welcome addition to Westminster because they remind the Conservative Party that you know out in the Westminster bubble, it's very different. And lives for people out in the you know in the constituency is is not like what it's like when you're you know swimming around in one million pound houses in in SW1. So I think that's a really good thing. Um, Boris Johnson's made it clear that, um, you know, regardless of, of what goes on in Parliament in the next few months, regardless of the budget, MPs should be in their constituencies. Stop swanning around Westminster all week. Go back to your patch and make sure that you're visible. People can see you there. People can approach you. They can tell you about their concerns. This is all good, but... Basic Tory stuff.
3: It really is the final question I've got for you, and you can choose to answer it or not. Boris Johnson to become a father again—that's uh, going to be an unusual story for Downing Street. But uh, he's he's managed to kind of upset as many lefties as he possibly could by by doing it. So it must be a good thing, right?
4: I just think, look, good luck to him. Um, Boris Johnson has never said that he isn't anything that he is. Ie, you know, he's not trying to make out that he's whiter than white. He's never tried to make out that you know, um, and he's always. Been very very clear that his private life is his private life yeah. the fact that our prime minister is happy and uh, everything seems to be going well uh, you know in his private life it makes me, you know, absolutely fine. What I don't want is a prime minister that's sitting at number ten all day long, miserable as sin, yes. and can't, you know, concentrate on on what he's doing. So if he's happy and his private life is going well for him, good luck to him.
3: Absolutely right. Well said, Casey, Thank you very much indeed. We still have to get you in for Plank of the Week, uh, not because you are one, but because we want you to judge them <laughs> for heaven's sake. No, we want you to ju- judge them. I'll be coming. My people will be coming to you with some dates to try and Look get you to uh, it. get you sorted. Thank you very much indeed, Casey Perrier, a former communications chief from Number Ten Downing Street, talking about a great many things. The budget, by the way, is coming up on Wednesday. Now, it may well be that we here in the Independent Republic of Mike Graham uh, make a triumphalist-type return to college Green and the tent of common sense. We're not quite sure yet whether that's the case, uh, but we will bring you uh, that news whenever we can. But what on earth is Rishi Sunak going to do? Because the budget process is all about prediction it's all about forecasting it's all about where economic growth is going to be six months from now or possibly two years from now and at the moment it's practically impossible to even do any of that because we want to hear from you on this 0344 499 1000 It might make sense to postpone the budget, mightn't it? Because all they people really need to know now is that they're going to have enough food to get them through to the end of the week, that they're going to be able to book a summer holiday at some point over the course of the next month, and that in some way, shape or form, they're going to be told that actually they're not going to die. Because like I said, if you think of the numbers of people who have been tested and the numbers of people who have come back negative, they are way and above... Um, a massive majority of the small number of people uh, who have been infected and who have since died. There are three people who have now said uh, to have died. Do you know that if you counted up the number of murders over the course of the weekend, uh, you would have probably got to about 10? So that's actually a bigger story that doesn't make the papers than the three people who have died who do. You see what I'm saying? 0344 499 1000. If you have been told you can't take a holiday, if you have been sent home, if your office has shut down, if your kids' schools uh, have been closed, we want to hear from you because you are uh, the eyes and ears of the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. You guys are the ones that give us the common sense. Now, coming up later on in the show, uh, we're going to be finding out uh, what happens at the first day of Alex Salmon's trial uh, up in Scotland because the former First Minister uh, of Scotland and the former leader of the SNP is about to embark on something which could be quite scandalous, uh, but we don't know yet exactly how that is going to go. But all eyes are going to be on Alex Salmon's trial uh, coming up very, very shortly. Uh, We'll be talking to Alex Dibble about that. Uh, We'll also find out why it is that working parents say... They can actually have it all, but only if they're men. 0344 499 1000. Don't forget uh, you can tweet us as well at Talk Radio and at IROMG. You can text us uh, to 87222. Uh, Text the word Talk plus your message. We'll be talking about the oil price. We'll be talking about the price of petrol. We'll be talking about the budget. And we'll be talking, of course, about Islamophobia and the Labour Party. This is Talk Radio. Mid morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, some of you might remember Steve Coogan got himself into one of these situations. He likes to drive quite fast as Steve Coogan. He's been done a few times for speeding, but he managed to keep his licence the last time he was done on the grounds that not just did he need to have a car to do his job, but Alan Partridge, the fictitious character that he plays on television needed the car uh, to drive around in. And the judge unbelievably said, oh, well, that's all right then. Uh, Despite the fact that you don't exist as a person, Alan Partridge needs to have a car to drive around in. Therefore, you can continue to drive around. It seems bizarre. Let's talk to Nick Freeman, uh, who knows a little bit about this sort of thing. Criminal defence lawyer, author and commentator, has been known in the past as Mr Loophole. Nick, a very good morning to you. Good morning, mate. So um, that was a bit of a a sort of a trend-setting thing that happened to Steve Coogan now, it would seem.
5: Well, what, what, what happened with Steve Coogan was he got he got to 12 points or more. I don't remember how many points he had, and he argued, "Look, there'll be exceptional hardship, not really for him, but for the people who were um, working on the next production of his programme, and they apparently they were independent independent consultants." Mm. And they would have lost their work, and they would have suffered exceptional hardship because they wouldn't have been able to put food on the table for their families. So they were, if you like, the innocent victims. No, I see. And often when you have innocent victims, it, it's a much stronger argument than actually the defendant himself or herself, because... They're in no way responsible. But it still sounds like... ...coming their way. So, you know, it it wasn't really him. It was the people who were going to suffer as a consequence of of his...
3: point. but what his argument was based on was that basically if Alan Partridge couldn't work because he couldn't drive, somehow the show couldn't be made.
5: Well, the show wouldn't go on.
3: Yeah. Um, And
5: because it was short notice, because it was all... it It was in the diary, it was going to happen, they couldn't get alternative work, it would have caused them big financial consequences. Right. And the court said, look, on the balance of probabilities, this is exceptional hardship. Once you get to 12 points, all that means is if you get to 12 points, you're off the road for six months. Minimum yeah. period straightforward. The court has a discretion if there is exceptional hardship. It can't be inconvenient. It's got to be exceptional hardship. You've got to prove it on the balance of probabilities, that, as I've indicated to you. If other people are going to suffer that hardship, whether it could be elderly or sick parents or family or children or... Um, it's a much stronger argument than yourself. If you if you're going to lose your employment, it doesn't necessarily mean it's exceptional hardship. It actually has to be exceptional hardship, and all that gives is the magistrates a discretion to say, well, yes, there is exceptional hardship. We're not going to disqualify you, or we can disqualify you for a lesser period, or we can disqualify for whatever period we want. Mm. So it just gives them a discretion. Um, to depart from those sort of mandatory six-month qualifications. Sure. Qualification but I'll forgive, you'll, all, for, all but you'll
3: forgive me, I'm sure, for saying this. It still sounds like something cooked up by a lawyer uh, in well, a room... It, it, well, it was cooked up by Parliament.
5: The idea was, very simply, Section 35 the 1988 Act, they said, look, people that you get salesmen who are driving 50,000 miles a year, they might commit five offences, um, and th- there might be 36 in a 30, might be 79 on, on the motorway. They're not serious offences... If the consequences are so severe, we're going to give them one more chance, and that's one chance in a three-year period. So you can only argue once in a three-year period. That was Parliament's intention. And the problem now is that lawyers, because the legislation was drafted in a clumsy way, mm. have the ridiculous situation where people are, are coming, getting a whole host of offences, and we read today a chap with 66 points, 11 offences are failing to furnish, turns up at court says, look... I will suffer exceptional hardship. He may suffer exceptional hardship, but in my view, the magistrates should exercise their discretion and say, yes, well, you will suffer exceptional hardship, but we're going to disqualify you, and we'll probably disqualify you for three years. Yeah. Well, I mean, looking at the... the... And and that's what should... So I don't understand, and obviously I haven't heard this case, I haven't heard his mitigation. Obviously it was exceptional hardship, but to have 11 offences of failing to provide information through the driveway, each one attracts six points. He's pleaded guilty, so he hasn't got a defence, or he hasn't argued a defence. It's a very generous exercise of the discretion. The problem I have with it is, it isn't what Parliament intended. And I've said time and time again, why doesn't Parliament get hold of it and just tighten that legislation up so that having one more chance for deserving cases is Mm. a good idea. But that's it.
3: Well, exactly. Because, I mean, it seems to me that because there is no specific definition uh, of exceptional hardship, which might be very difficult to define legally, it it is obviously going to be then open to to massive interpretation, isn't it?
5: It is. But magistrates, they're quite shrewd. They know what what, what exceptional hardship is. You and I know what it is. You know, if you hear the arguments, you can decide, well... Yeah, it's terribly inconvenient. Is it exceptional hardship? Is it really going to be that far? It's a very high bar. Mm.
6: Um,
5: and, and, you know, just with common understanding of the English language, we can work out what it is. You can't define it. It will be impossible to define it. So we rely on trained magistrates or judges to say, yeah it is or no it is. Yes. If it is, we have a discretion. You've committed one offence, we're going to exercise Mm. it in your favour. You've committed 10, absolutely not.
3: Right. Now, what about, I mean, just to go back to this case of Steve Coogan for a moment, um, surely his hardship that he was describing was a temporary one in the sense that, you know, if you're filming something and you're worried that people are going to lose their livelihood because that filming has to be interrupted, surely by the time you finish the filming, then the hardship disappears. So they could have said to him, why don't you serve your ban after you finish filming?
5: No, because the ban is with immediate effect.
3: Well, no, I get that, but why couldn't they have adjusted that and said... Well,
5: because I think it was, it was scheduled, you know, they've, they've got that. There's a lot, as you will know, a lot booked in, in terms of, I don't know, makeup parties, yeah. film production sets, et etc., et cetera, et cetera, for a programme. It's all scheduled in, it's due to start on this date, and the problem with his case was the six-month ban would, er, would erode into that 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 working period, which meant that actually the work couldn't take place.
3: Yes. No, Uh, I get that, but why not wait until the work's over and then say, now you've got six months back? Because everyone else has their their diaries
5: are full for maybe a year or two years ahead so they wouldn't be able to do it.
3: But that's the problem with the law, it seems, in this country because everyone that I've spoken to about that case thinks it's unfair, uh, thinks it was given special treatment because of who he was and and all of that Uh, because if Joe Bloggs had gone into a situation like that and tried to convince a judge of exceptional hardship, he wouldn't have got anywhere near what uh, Coogan was able to get away with. And so people perceive things to be unfair and usually means that they are. And in the end, the law says, oh, well, we can interpret this and we can interpret that but we can't interpret the sentence. Well, why not?
5: Well, I think, Mike, to be honest with you, um, if you're a celebrity or if you're somebody who's well-known or you have a higher profile, you actually have more of an uphill battle. that that That's that the reality. That's certainly the rea- reality in my experience. Of course, you might have better representation because you've got deeper mm. pockets and, and can afford better representation and somebody can argue more persuasively for you. Yeah. Um, but what you don't know is you don't read day in and day out of all the other cases because they just don't make the news. Sure. So you're you're using as a barometer a case that received a massive amount of publicity, and I understand your argument. I haven't heard all the facts of the case, so I can't. You know, a, a court's made a decision. They've made it not because of Steve Coogan, but because of the people who were working on set who would have lost their jobs. Would have lost their remuneration during that period of time, and that's really these are the people we should focus on it, it actually had nothing to do with Steve um, Coogan he, he was the defendant but but the, the hardship didn't relate to him it related to others yes. no, I don't think the court for one second thought oh um, Mr. Coogan, you're going to suffer exceptional hardship if you can't do this it's the people whose jobs were dependent upon him
3: for yes for the reason. net result and I don't want to get stuck on this particular case but the net result is that Steve Coogan doesn't get banned from driving when most Correct. people would have done it. Yeah, that, I mean, well, that's I, the bottom I, line, I, isn't it?
5: Well, it, most people wouldn't have a production set um, wait, waiting on hand whose livelihoods are dependent upon the, Steve Coogan being able to drive.
3: Yes, quite. Um, so, but let's talk yeah. about the war on the motorists in general because I don't know whether you know how many cases of, of speeding are taken, how many people are banned on an annual basis. It seems as though there are now many people who should have been banned, as many as 10,000-plus as a result of this kind of loophole, that, that, that are not being banned. And I'm afraid if they are recidivists, if they are people who are continually speeding, and if you've got 66 points in your licence, uh, partly, as you say, uh, to, to, for, for other reasons as well, you know, these people might be dangerous.
5: I think that, um, that, look, it's very easy to get a distorted view of what's happening. I think, actually, the number of people who are driving with more than 20 points on the licence is actually very few. Um, but as I've said... It it shouldn't happen and it should have one more chance so that the law needs to be taken hold of. I think the vast majority of cases that you're talking about, when you think, I mean, that there are millions and millions of people who drive on our road, uh, and there are millions and millions of people whose livelihoods are dependent upon their mobility. Um, And, you know, when they fall foul of the law, uh, they have one more chance. And they're clearly arguing successfully 10,000 or whatever the figure was isn't that many when you look at it in the context of that the, the huge number of people who are actually driving in is, and dependent upon their mobility. You know, If you have a salesman who's travelling up and down the country and the cameras are everywhere uh, and he's committed um, five offences over a three-year period and he's travelling sixty thousand 60,000 miles a year, um, the courts say, look, you know, you're, we're going to give you one more chance, and you can't argue that again. I, I don't think that's wrong. I think Parliament wisely gave that that the courts that discretion and i think it you know we don't want robotical court court sentencing we want a bit of discretion
3: no but we want also a law-abiding populace generally speaking and if people who uh break the law get away with it continually then that makes it look bad and it makes everybody else feel like you know they're being hard done by but mike
5: i think the statistics show something like 70 percent of people who drive admit speeding that's that, evidence, what, that's, unfortunately, what's that got to do with though, it? Such a, such a poor state that you crawl along. So you say, right, I've got a meeting at 11 o'clock. I'm going to leave two hours for that meeting. Yeah. Inevitably, you're going to have terrible, terrible congestion. They're going to be unforeseen things that happen en route. So when you get a little bit of a clear motorway, um, for example, you're going to say, look, I'm going to, I'm going to creep up to 80 miles an hour to try and make good the time. I'm not saying it's right or it's wrong. In my view, the speed limits on motorways are too slow. They should be increased. Um, Yeah, but I bet you
3: if they were, that would not stop people from speeding. It would just mean people speeded at higher speeds. So if you made it 90, you'd be be getting passed by people doing 120. No,
5: I don't think you would because I think actually, um, you know, if you look at the 70 mile an hour, it was the maximum speed of the Ford Anglia um, uh, in 1957. Um, You wouldn't want to go 70 miles an hour in a Ford Anglia. It's its maximum speed. I wouldn't. no. <laughs> M- <laughs> most cars now travel very safely at 80 miles an hour. No, I get part that.
3: Part but, part I mean, all you've got to do is, dr- is go to Germany and see how fast people drive in Germany because only until up to relatively recently, my understanding is that they didn't even have speed limits on some of the autobahns there. Yeah, and yeah, the speeds... Yeah, yeah. I mean, a mate of mine was once driving in France, right? Um, and he was driving down the sort of Rue de Soleil, whatever they call it, um, doing a 90 miles an hour in his, uh, in his family car. He was yeah. overtaken by a guy towing a boat
5: yeah, well, look, you're always going to be idiots and they need to be taken off the road. You're always... Whatever, whatever law you introduce, there are always going to be one or two who you... You know, you, you hopefully have your dash cam footage and they're the ones that need to be removed for a long period of time. But the majority of motorists actually drive quite sensibly... Yeah. Uh, and, and quite responsibly.
3: Um, yes, no, I agree. But, I mean, your your timing is perfect because I'm looking at a story that's been released today. UK road commuters lost an average of 115 hours stuck yeah, in traffic seven, last seven year. Seven million billion. Pounds. I mean, it's, it's horrendous. I million. was just saying at the weekend, I went to pick up my daughter from Gatwick Airport. The M23, which is the only road that goes to Gatwick Airport, pretty much, was shut. Yeah. The, the, the ro- whole road. The, you, you
5: look, I, I, I drove... Back from the south of France on Wednesday, and you drive from France to Cam, which is 750 miles, and you sit without a hold-up. You just sit at a steady speed, yeah. and it's absolutely clear. There's never a problem. The moment you get into England, it's just mayhem. Yeah. Uh, do you think uh, is
3: that because of the toll roads? Do you think?
5: I think that the to- I think that look, the infant. You know, we have smart motorways now. We've invested all this money in smart motorways. Those are ridiculous. And the lanes are too narrow. They're horrendously dangerous you 've got can you imagine driving along and you have a puncture which can happen to anyone and you you're in a live lane and where do you go because there's no refuse area? People who have designed this haven't actually well we need all along every motorway to have an immediate place for you to move to if you have a breakdown or yeah. if you have a puncture and there is nowhere so you have a stranded family it, it's it's just. You can't imagine the stupidity that has gone into the design, and then of course you're provided with false information constantly, Um, so people don't trust the gantry information because it's inevitably it's wrong. Whereas abroad it's spot on Mm. all the time. They'll say broken lorry in lane one, two and a half kilometres, and lo and behold, it is. So you don't have a hold up because you know that that information is correct. So we 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 have a a a road system in this country, and I, I don't know who's running it or what brain set they have, but in my view, and I think most other motorists' view, they they don't seem to be thinking about it sensibly or responsibly, and I don't understand why. It's not rocket science, is it, just to get the system... No, absolutely. We Um, can
3: finish on a a point on which we agree. Great. Nick, thank you very much indeed. Nick Freeman there, uh, criminal defence lawyer, author, commentator. Uh, You can see why he's known as Mr Loophole, can't you? A very clever man. But here's the thing. If you, as a motorist, are getting done, uh, why shouldn't everybody else be getting done at the same time? It's not right for people to be getting away uh, with breaking the law, in my view, whether it's speeding, whether it's failing to stop for a a traffic light, whether it's a parking offence. You know, if you're going to get tickets, why should somebody else be able to get off them just because they've got a smart lawyer? That doesn't seem right. But what about 115 hours spent sitting in traffic? Certainly feels like I've done a lot of that.
2: Mid morning with Mike Graham. Cork radio.
3: Now, just a few uh, details on this latest supposed infection. It would bring the number of UK cases to 280, uh, if indeed it turns out to be correct. But there are reports that a Transport for London worker has tested positive for coronavirus. Uh, and that, of course, would mean uh, that people working on the underground might have to be in some way all tested to make sure they haven't caught it from him. It's a very bizarre story, this. I still can't really work it out. Let's talk to Joe Hemmings, somebody sensible, and see if we can get any sense about something other than coronavirus. Joe, a very good afternoon to you.
7: Good afternoon. Are you self
3: isolating yet?
7: Oh, well, I work from home, so there's a bit of self isolation going on. But I mean, this panic buying that's going on in the shops is insane. What is toilet roll all about? It's insane, is isn't it? Yeah. Coronavirus.
3: I mean, I can understand people buying loads of tins of beans or something, but I mean, yeah. it's just, I've never seen anything like it. People fighting no. over it, Vervin saying. When I first saw that video, I don't know if you saw it over the weekend. I saw it. These three, I, I had the sound down, right? And I just assumed it was somewhere in America because, you know, I thought that sort of thing only happens there. And then, of course, once the sound went up, I was like, my God, it's in Britain.
7: Yeah. No, it's 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 terrifying because it's got nothing to do with our digestive system. It won't make any difference. No one will die if they don't have toilet paper. No,
3: exactly. And so, without wishing to be too kind of graphic about it, it's not the world's most essential thing. You know, there are other ways of doing all of that, but indeed. that's another story. Let's not go there. Let's talk instead about having it all, um, including presumably coronavirus.
7: Well, let's presume not for now. Yes, for this particular reason.
3: Yes, exactly right. But it doesn't surprise me that men believe they could rise to the top in their profession while still being a good parent, because for men—and I'm I'm saying this as a man, obviously—you know, of course, men think they're great parents, but not necessarily (laughs) everybody would agree.
7: No, and actually what's interesting about this research is that there's 50% of men who thought they could do it and 40% of women. That's actually quite a hike. It's normally double the amount yeah. of research. It's double the amount of men. I mean, if you look at paternity leave, 30% of men in the UK take paternity leave, that's all. And it's only two paid weeks. Right. So they aren't off very long. So they go back to their careers. Uh, you know, women can take up to 52 weeks, right. uh, paid for 39 weeks. Um, And even after uh, when the first child is 12, um, studies have shown that their hourly rate for women is still 33 percent behind that of a man. So, you know, what's going on there? It's not just the difference in maternity and even getting your career back on track. It's all those things that women do behind the scenes, uh, which they get on with quietly to Manage to work and yes. childcare at the same time. You know, they sort out the childcare, they children's schedule, social school schedule. They fill the fridge, they plan yeah. the meals. These are all things that women do, as well as working. And yeah. so, having it all is much tougher.
3: Yes, of course. And don't you think as well there is still a kind of um, lingering prejudice against women who leave work to go and have children? I mean, there's, I would say very few women have been able to go away from their job, have a child, come back to the same job and continue their kind of seamless rise to the top?
7: Yes. I mean, it should be much better. There's all sorts of legislation in place that shouldn't allow that to happen. Yeah. But, of course, you know, behind the the legal side of it, uh, it's it's much slower. Yeah. Generally, women, even if they come back at the same level, they don't rise in the same way. There's that thought, well, if they had one child, they might have another um, you know, it's just sort of women are generally held back. Still, actually, I wasn't back in the day, which I find extraordinary. I went back to a very senior job, um, but I think that was kind of groundbreaking at the time. Mm. Um, but for most women, I think that's a, it's a very unusual situation.
3: I mean, certainly, a lot of the women that I've known in journalism have struggled once they've gone away to have kids because it's a very fast-moving business and you know if you say find your way up the greasy pole of executive stardom in fleet street you know um if you leave that greasy pole you have to kind of start at the bottom again
7: you do and actually freelance part-time works quite hard to get yeah. child care i think we're the second most expensive country in the world uh for child care so you know taking into All these things into um, account, it's actually almost impossible to get back to where you were financially, or indeed in terms of status. Yes. um, When you've had a child, still in 2020. Yeah,
3: absolutely right. 70
7: percent of men thinking it's okay for them. Yeah. Uh, Well. And so, are
3: we perhaps less, um, shall we say, equal than we thought?
7: Yeah, I think this happens time and time again in this research. You know, we we as we say, all the legislation takes place, and yet. Fundamentally, there's still the majority of women doing all that extra stuff to make it seamless behind the scenes that can be exhausting. That mm. um, men generally don't see as their role, and women do see as their role. So there's no kind of judgment there. Um but that I don't know when that will ever change, but that goes on in all these sorts
3: right. of And uh, and are we also guilty roles? as well of kind oh, yeah. of just lumping women all together and men all together? Because presumably it does depend on the job. It does depend perhaps on your income level and, and, and where you live as
7: well. It does, but the fact that only thirty percent of men take paternity leave, um and that that number's actually dropping annually. So it seems to me that we're going in reverse now. Um, So that actually, it's still more women who are taking that chunk of time off and more women who are going to be struggling to get their position back. So we're actually backpedalling. I'm not quite sure why, but that's what the stats would say. Yeah,
3: and I know we always talk about Scandinavia because they have much more kind of modern, shall we say, social policies than we have. But is there any evidence that says that if you have the ability, as I think men do in Sweden, to take a year off yes that that's actually better
7: i think it is i think if there was parity in terms of what could be taken off and also you would get a very clear idea of what has to go on during that year yeah um you know in terms of child rearing and care yeah i think it would make a massive difference but you know with two weeks of paternity leave uh, as opposed to potentially 52 weeks for mm. women in the uk that situation is very, very unlikely. I must day.
3: admit, when I took... Uh, I once took two weeks off for maternity paternity leave, I think, and I, I was I was sort of begging to go back after the, about ten days because it was much harder than working.
7: Yeah, it's, it's really <laughs> hard work. And also, it's just, it's just like taking a holiday, but without the holiday benefits. You just want to get back to work two yeah. weeks I know, well, <laughs> it's totally. true.
3: And, I mean, as yeah. far as my, my family life is concerned, my kids and, and their mother are more than happy for me to get lost after about three days and go back to work in London. <laughs>
7: Yeah, well, I think that might help generate the kind of situation where we don't really mind if we don't have it all.
3: No, quite. Um, I mean, I'm not too yeah. sure I, I want to have it all, to be honest. I mean, I'm quite happy with with my lot, and uh, I might not have everything I want, but, I'm, you know, being happy is a much more important thing to me.
7: But it's also a choice for women. I mean, they perhaps don't want to be at that level they were before they had children. I mean, that isn't taken into account ever in this sort of research. Perhaps they're happy staying at a certain level because, you know, they can their hours are more manageable and they can get back. But, yes. but again, it's nearly always the women who make that decision. Uh, it's not generally the men who decide that, perhaps in Scandinavia, but not in the UK.
3: Right. So as far as the sort of um, the way forward is concerned, are you, I mean, because I look at the kind of the new generation of people who are about to have children, you know, say the millennials, and I do worry slightly that not only are they not going to have it all, they're, they're not going to have anything, really, because they're not necessarily prepared for it.
7: No, they're not. I think you know what we do is we sort of tend to, um, you know, inhabit the area that our parents did, or the roles that our mothers did, or our fathers did, and that goes on through the generations. Are actually quite hard to, to break that. And for some people, it, they just don't realise how difficult, or how expensive it is to go back to work. Yeah. Um, when they've got children and. You know, that, that, A, comes as a shock, but a lot of it is that very quiet, behind-the-scenes stuff. But if you start talking about it and explaining to your partner, look, I have to sort out the school runs, I have to sort out the childcare, have to sort out the food, yeah. uh, et cetera, et cetera, that can quite often be a bit of a point of an argument. You mm. know, that will say, well, you are you saying? I'm not doing enough. Well, kind of. Yeah. So people quietly get on with this, but it's wearying. Yes. And, and you know, that has an impact on how well they do at work. And they're tired when they start work, tired when they finish. Yeah. Um, you know, that's going to have a mental impact on, on how, you know, how highly they achieve. Yes, ultimately.
3: I'm a great believer in getting teenagers to do a lot more work, generally speaking, around the house.
7: Indeed. You well, know,
3: absolutely. Recipe for happiness, that is. Not for their happiness, of course. And, for, well, and also for also their
7: future, um, you know, <laughs> training. Oh, absolutely. Right. No, no, what I think it's really, have to expect. No, I think
3: it's really important because you see far too many of them now who just don't do anything, you know? They, they don't know how to do anything either.
7: They don't know how to do it. And, of course, you know, we as parents don't want to see, you know, that desperately untidy room for too long. And there's a very brave parent that can say, right, i shutting the door on bits of old pizza under the bed. You know, eventually we do get in there and give it a clean. I mean, it's I going, hate Like, to, next time it's your responsibility.
3: I hate to bring politics into it, but when I saw Rebecca Long-Bailey boasting on the recent Labour Party uh, leadership debate that she calls her six-year-old the king um, and basically he gets whatever he wants whenever he comes and asks for something... I thought to myself, blimey, that's not a very good uh, example no, to, to show worrying. anyone, is it?
7: One spoiled child growing up there.
3: Yeah, really. And I mean, although, as somebody once said to me, well, he sounds a bit like, a bit like an individualist, definitely not a Corbynista, <laughs> which <laughs> may well be true. But listen, Joe, thank you very much indeed. Joe Hemmings, a psychologist, telling us about the whys and wherefores of why uh, it would seem that women don't believe that they can have it all in quite so much uh, terms in quite so many terms as men think that they can have it all. Well, that's because men don't have to do very much, you know? I don't think I would really trust any man who says, oh, I do 50% of the childcare. I don't think they do. Men might think they do 50% of the childcare, but they really don't do it. It's not their way. But I'll take your calls on that as well. 0344 499 1000. By the way, I should give a special mention, because I haven't yet, to Extinction Rebellion at the weekend, because, of course, it was International Women's Day uh, yesterday, Sunday, and a load of women from Extinction Rebellion decided it would be a great idea uh, to form themselves into a human chain, topless, across Waterloo Bridge. Um, If you're squeamish, I wouldn't uh, go looking at it, because it's not very pleasant. But... uh, I mean, what on earth are they thinking? What's going on? International Women's Day is not an idea that you're supposed to celebrate by blocking traffic topless. I really don't think that's a very good idea at all. They may have to make it onto the planks of the week list, which this week we're doing uh, in the company of James Max uh, from The Early Breakfast Show and, of course, Dawn Neeson as well. This is Talk Radio.
2: Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. The independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.
3: Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. Dan Wooten coming up at four and, of course, Matthew Wright coming up uh, at one o'clock. We've got lots and lots of uh, uh, of tweets coming in as well at Talk Radio at I-R-O-M-G. So before I go back to the phones, uh, Joe wants to talk about Jolian Moron. Uh, Moron belongs to that disgusting class of people with a misplaced superiority complex. We all know them, the ones who have been promoted well beyond their ability. Everybody loathes them and yet they are the only ones who can't see it. I think that's absolutely right. He really is. Uh, Neo says this... Please stop tarnishing all men with the same brush, Mike. I had two daughters, did 50-plus hours a week, and still did all the cooking, cleaning, transportation, shopping, schoolwork, reading, and housework, and took no paternity leave. Hence why I'm now divorced. (laughs) Well, I don't know why you got divorced. Presumably it was because your then-wife didn't do anything. But she must have done something, because you can't look after kids and work at the same time, can you? Surely. Unless you were working from home. Maybe you were. Uh, Perhaps you could elucidate. Uh, Let's talk to Gerard, who's in crew. Hello, Gerard. Hello, Michael. How are
8: you, sir? Uh, well, I'm, well, just recovering from a virus, but not the one we've all been talking about. Oh, well, about. thank goodness for that. Yeah. Uh, anyway, I think I must have been ahead of our, my time then because 32 years ago, I was the one who took on responsibility for our girl and brought her up. Really? And the reason for that. Well, the reason for that, Michael, was pure economics. Yes. My wife has always been the clever one. She's always earned more money than me. Right. She's always been more hardworking than me and intensely loyal as well. Right. So, so did
3: you guys make that decision collectively yeah. that the best thing to do would be for you to look after the, yeah. the kid?
8: Yeah, she was way ahead of me in the earning scale and yeah. that's been for the past 30 years. Okay. So that's been down to us. So I, I think sometimes us men get a hard time because a lot of couples out there do sit down and say... What, how? What's going to pay the finances? Yeah. What's going to pay the mortgage quicker?
3: Right.
8: It, it's not as clear cut as some people say that it's
3: always men. Most- no, but I mean, you what? must have been quite an unusual father in those days, though.
8: Possibly so. Yeah. I mean, there's a funny tale, but I can't tell you over the phone. <laughs> but what- I had to stand at a bus stop lots of times on my own, and I looked the very odd one out. And yes. I did get a few comments saying, what you do standing there outside the girls' school? I know. You don't? Well, it's true. I
3: mean, I, 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 whenever I was ever in a position, because I've worked so many different strange hours and stuff, I was able to take my kids to school and pick them up quite a lot, depending on, you know, whatever job I was doing. And I was very often, even nowadays, um, a, a, a very much in the minority of, of men picking up their school children.
8: Yeah, I I do say, mean, we don't live too far away from school now, I do see an awful lot of men now are taking that responsibility, but when I was in the civil service for 30 odd years, most of my bosses were were women, uh, and they were the better ones, to be honest, I'm not here as a sales rep for women, but they were the better ones to work for, because unlike some men, they didn't have to prove themselves when they came into the
3: department, Sure. Yeah, no, absolutely right. Well, Pretty Patel can't appoint a couple of women to run the home office, but that's another story. Gerard, thanks very much indeed for your call. I know, listen, I know an awful lot of men who have taken time out of work and decided that they want to spend time raising their children at home. It's not something that I would have volunteered to do, and I don't say that with any rancour. It's just not for me. You know, I'm, I'm very well aware uh, that women are better at bringing up children than I am. It's that simple. Let's talk to Tony, who wants to talk about Pretty Patel, Funny enough, in Somerset. Hello, Tony. Hello, Mike, how are you, mate? Very well, sir. What can I do for you?
9: Uh, well, you've probably seen nothing quite vocal with you on Twitter, but um, uh, I'm the one that keeps bringing up about um, Ash, Askar, uh, and Pretty oh, yeah. Patel. Yes. Guardian thing over the weekend. Yes. Uh, to be honest, if that cartoon was of Diane Abbott or Don Butler, it would have been uproar, wouldn't there? Oh,
3: of course there would. I mean, there's one law for one lot of people and one, another law for another lot of people. I mean, it's quite. I mean, I, I'm not one of those people that takes offence at cartoons, but it's a pretty offensive cartoon, isn't it? <laughs>
9: Well, yeah, and then some people have also cropped the one of Boris out, cropped him out of the photo as well. But the, the, the thing that riles me the most is that the BBC are now giving these
3: people platforms by yes. like
9: Ash Asgard right. all the time. I'm so glad you got Darren Grimes with you later on. Yes. Uh, because I think, I think he's a legend. What he well, I think he
3: is. And he's yeah. been through some terrible experiences at the hands of these lefties who tried to basically criminalise the poor guy and make him out to be some kind of lawbreaker, which he clearly wasn't. Well
9: we've got people like him, and we've got people like Tom Arburn who actually stand up for the for, for the proper people as yes. far as'm i concerned yes uh, we 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 get shot down at every opportunity, but these Uh, The Guardian, I I, I would love to see it go up in
3: flames. Well, do you know what the the funniest thing about The Guardian this weekend is they've got their knickers in a twist collectively um, about a piece written by Suzanne Moore. Because Suzanne Moore, who is one of the more intelligent writers in this country and is one of the more uh, sort of interesting feminists in this country and has been for a very long time, she's actually written a piece about the trans debate and about how, you know, you can't actually be a woman just because you say you are. And they're all now trying to boycott their own paper. 300 people who work for The Guardian have tried, have sent a petition to the editor to not publish Suzanne Moore.
9: My God, they're
3: morons. They really are. They're sort of eating themselves collectively. I
9: wish they would.
3: Yeah, (laughs) well, yeah, exactly right. Fantastic. Tony, thanks very much indeed. Tony there uh, in Somerset uh, talking about that. Lots more of you want to get on. Lots more of you will get on. There's plenty of time for it still. We're here until 1 o'clock, 0344 499 1000. Uh, Lots and lots of action going on in the coronavirus world. We've been covering the Alex Salmon trial. He's pleaded not guilty to all charges, by the way, uh, which is the first development of the day from that particular court in Edinburgh. We'll bring you more news from there as it happens. But also, of course, um, many uh, coronavirus stories going around this morning as well. We've basically got, um, supposedly, the first case in TfL, which is Transport for London. Somebody who is working inside the Traffic Control Centre in the centre of London is supposed to have been infected. We'll bring you news on that. Also, lots of reports doing the rounds at the moment about the Six Nations. You might remember that last weekend... The game between Ireland and Italy was cancelled because the Irish didn't want anybody from Italy travelling to Dublin to watch the game. So that was cancelled. The England-Italy game, which is taking place in Rome, was then cancelled. There are reports in France suggesting that telephone calls are being made today between the various rugby federations, which might lead uh, to uh, the final weekend games, which would be coming up this weekend, to be axed. Now, that would presumably mean that there will be no Six Nations winner this year, Um, Now, if that's going to happen to the Six Nations, who's to say that that could happen or could not happen to the Premier League as well? And I know we joked about this last week, uh, but if Liverpool were to be not crowned champions as a result of the coronavirus because the games could not be played, then I think that would be pretty uh, bad news all round, wouldn't it? But we'll bring you news of all of that stuff, of course, as and when we can. Uh, I've been asking you for your reports on panic buying and what people are doing. Let's talk to Graham, who I think is in Peterborough. Hello, Graeme. Oh, good
9: afternoon. Hello, what can you tell me? Yeah, I uh, had to do a little drop-in to, well, it was panic buying by myself, um, just to make sure that the red wine stocks were up to the uh, level that I think would be uh, accommodating. That's a
3: very good idea, that, yeah.
9: <laughs> but, um, yeah, the toilet roll was flying off the shelves.
3: I don't understand that. I mean, I might be being stupid here, but why do, you, why do people need so much toilet roll? I don't know.
9: I remember the panic buying of the uh, 70s potatoes, yeah. sugar, toilet roll. Yeah. I mean, I've got my, my own little stash, but mm. that was because of
3: Brexit. Right. Well, this is, this is what I worry about. The the, the fears over what was going to happen after Brexit have now sort of, have now been sort of uh, transferred now to the coronavirus world, and so people now are frightened that we're going to run out of stuff because of the coronavirus. I'm now beginning to wonder whether we actually now have a nation of complete idiots... Um, You know?
9: Yeah, well, probably. I'll tell you what place that you could send them to. Where? I was on um, my uh, uh, sort of wholesale paper round today. Oh, yeah. Up in Spalding in Lincolnshire. Mm. I went past a place called Two Plank Lane. Really? (laughs) Yeah. It, It does
3: exist. That'll do. Fantastic. Well, I'll, send, I'll I'll see if I can get. A, a, next time you go past it, send me. A, take a picture of it and send it in, and we'll put it up on the uh, put it up on the website and tell people to head there. Very good indeed. Thank you, Graham. Uh, in Peterborough, there is some kind of strange mentality going on. I mean, I have absolutely no wish to stockpile anything. Right? I just don't. No way will you get me doing that under any circumstances. Why would you have a house full of stuff that you may never use? Uh, on the grounds that, you know, it's like these people who prepare for the apocalypse, you know, these kind of uh, survivalists out in America, you know, who have these underground bunkers because they think that somehow the world is going to end or, you know, the aliens are going to arrive and kill everybody and they're going to have to hide for years and years and years in these nuclear sort of uh, bunkers. It's bonkers, isn't it? Talk radio
2: across the UK, online, on DAB and on your smart speaker. The independent republic of Mike Graham
3: on Talk Radio.